This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, it's our custom to have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess any known sins to the Lord in the privacy of your priesthood, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity and privilege to study your word. We know from scripture that the most important thing that we can do is to learn to think as you think, to learn to look at life as you have instructed us to look at life, and to learn to interpret the uh, events and the details of life around us in proper perspective according to what you have revealed in your word. Our Lord prayed, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth, so that the study of your word is the highest form of worship. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation to meet together freely and to study your word freely. We pray that you would continue to protect us, to uh, provide security for this nation, that we may, to continue, may continue to worship freely. Father, now we pray that as we study your word that we would be responsive to what is taught, that the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us, and that we would be able to and be willing to apply these things consistently in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 3 John chapter 1. There's only one chapter in 3 John. 3 John verse 2. 3 John verse 2. John began this short epistle, The Elder to the Beloved Gaius whom I love by means of the truth, and then he addresses him for the first time, first of three times, as beloved. We spent the last several weeks addressing the issue of personal love in its context of how a believer can love personally, either in a romance situation or friendship. And this was a situation where John apparently had a very close relationship to Gaius. And Gaius is going through a difficult circumstance, either because he is the pastor of a congregation, which is going through some uh, dissension because of one Diotrephes, who is introducing, uh, because of his arrogance, some uh, disharmony into the congregation. Or Gaius is at least one of the key people in that congregation. So the apostle addresses him with specific principles of how to handle that kind of a situation. Now in verse 2 we read, Beloved, I pray 
that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now, whether you realize it or not, this is a very famous verse because it is frequently taken out of context by a crowd of usually tele-evangelists and many people who do not know anything about the Word of God as the uh, crucial text for what is known as the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel. This primarily has its roots in charismatic churches. And that is a subject that we won't quite get to this morning, but we will spend a good bit of time on it next uh, Sunday morning. This morning we need to focus on the beginning of this, which is focusing on the verb, Beloved, I pray that you... John the Apostle is praying specifically for you, which is a second-person singular uh, pronoun referring to Gaius. This John here is relating his intercessory prayer on behalf of his friends. He uses the first-person singular present active indicative of the verb eukomai, eukomai. And it looks like this in the Greek, E-U-C-H-O-M-A-I, E-U-C-H-O-M-A-I. Normally, the word that we find for prayer is pros eukamai, but that is the prefix is dropped off here. All we have is the verb eukamai, which is the basic verb for prayer, or to express a wish or a desire. But in this context, it is talking about prayer. There are two basic words, the Eukamai word group and the Dekamai word group, which are used to express the concept of prayer in Greek. Either one of these words expresses prayer. Here, John uses the general word. It's a present active indicative, and the present tense here is a habitual present tense, indicating that this is John's standard operating procedure, that is, to pray for those around him. And the principle here is that believers should be in regular prayer for their friends and family. They should be consistently in prayer for their husbands or wives, whatever the case may be, For their children, children should be praying for their parents, and you should be praying for your friends. This should be a standard procedure on a regular basis. And so in light of that, I thought it had been some time since we had reviewed the doctrine of prayer. So this morning we need to review the doctrine of prayer. Some of this is pretty standard for most of you, but we all need it to be reminded and perhaps kicked in the pants every now and then to uh, spend some time in prayer and to be reminded of what the Scripture teaches us about prayer. Now, when I go through a passage like, or a study like this, sometimes I'll use the concept of effective prayer. Sometimes we might see the word prevailing prayer. The same concept is we use the word effective prayer. Sometimes we think about prayer as that which uh, succeeds in producing or gaining from God that which we have requested. But we can't determine that. Effective prayer must be determined by that prayer which honors and glorifies God and follows all of the principles and procedures that are given in the Scriptures. Just because we do everything the way we 
should do it, and just because it is a scripturally correct prayer does not mean that God is bound to give us the answer we request. God answers prayer three ways. He says yes, no, and wait a while. And for most of us, we get the wait a while, and we don't like that. So by effective prayer, I mean prayer... I do not mean prayer that secures a yes answer, but a prayer that will successfully make it to the throne of God. You see, there's a lot of prayers that people utter that never make it beyond the ceiling over their head because they're out of fellowship for some reason, or maybe they're not even a Christian, or for any number of reasons, it is an improper prayer. It violates certain scriptural principles, and so their prayer is nothing more than an exercise in futility. So let's begin by understanding what prayer is. Uh, Prayer is a communication link between you, the individual believer priest, and God, the Heavenly Father. Uh, So for a definition, prayer is that grace provision, and this is prayer in this age, prayer is that grace provision of the royal priesthood, whereby the church-age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. Let's just stop right there as far as the definition goes. It is a grace provision. That means that prayer is not dependent upon anything you do or you don't do. Prayer is God's gift to the believer to give us access to his throne. And what we know from Scripture is that you do not need to go through an external priesthood. You do not need to, like they did in the Old Testament, go through a priest. You don't need to go through a priest like some denominations have in order to get to God. As a believer, you are a royal priest, and you have the privilege of immediate access to God and to the throne of grace at any time in your life. So it is a grace provision of the royal priesthood, and every believer is a royal priest. Whereby the church-age believer, that refers to this age, has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. We can go directly before the throne of grace at any time. Sometimes we forget what a privilege that is. Sometimes we forget how unique that is in history. Do you realize that for at least 4,000, maybe 5,000 years before Christ, no Old Testament believer had direct access to the throne of God? He had to go through some sort of priesthood, and he had to go through some sort of ritual in relationship to his prayer. So it's a, we have the privilege to communicate directly with God. Now, what's the purpose of this, the second part of the definition? The purpose of this communication is, first of all, to acknowledge our sin. This is going to bring into play the different kinds of prayer. We can acknowledge our sin to confess our sin so that we can have cleansing for sin after we're saved. If you sin after you're saved, you don't lose your salvation. If you sin after you're saved, it doesn't affect your eternal standing with God. When you sin after you're saved, though, it does affect the day-to-day relationship that we have with God, just as when you disobey your parents, it affects your immediate present fellowship with your parents. It doesn't mean that you're no longer their child. Nothing can remove remove that fact. You are their uh, child and their 
biological offspring and nothing you do can ever change that. They may disinherit you. They may do a number of things. They may kick you out of the house. They may turn their back on you. But the fact of your being their child can never be uh, change, and that's true for the believer. You can't do anything to be removed from the family of God. Once you are regenerate, you can never lose your salvation. What we do to recover from sin is to admit or acknowledge our sin to Him, First John 1, nine. The second purpose of prayer is to express adoration and praise to God. This is a reflection of our own gratitude, our understanding of all that we have that he has provided. We uh, express adoration and praise to God for who he is and for what he has done. We give thanks. We express our gratitude to him. We also intercede for others and convey our personal needs, petitions, and conduct intimate conversations with God. Sometimes that surprises people. We can have intimate conversations with God, just as you do with your very best friend. You can talk with God about anything. Some people think, well, why should I bother God with this? Or, this is such a small matter, I'm not going to bother God with it. That reflects an extremely low view of God. Number one, God is omniscient. That means God knows everything. He knows all the trivial, all the mundane affairs of your life. You're not going to tell him something he doesn't know. Don't worry about distracting God. He is omnipresent. He is equally present to every place in his creation at every moment in his creation. And he can give every single person... In the world, or in all of history, if they all existed at the same time, the same equal undiminished attention as he does to you. It is absurd to think that somehow you have some issue in your life that bothers you that is too great to bother God with, or too small to bother God with, that I just don't want to bother him with this. In fact, what he wants is for us to bring everything to him in prayer. So prayer is uh, having intimate conversations with God. Now, let's look at how this is supposed to be uh, carried out. Jesus Christ described effective prayer as the mature believer's privilege to engage divine power in both personal and historical circumstances. In other words, prayer can be used not only to change things in your life, but it can change things in historical circumstances. Now, there are some people who think that that prayer will change anything. That's not true. You have to avoid two extremes. Some people think that if I pray, if I follow the set formula, if I go read the prayer of Jabez, and if I repeat that silly little um, prayer that's in that book over and over again, then I'm going to get... Wealth and prosperity. See, that's the problem that underlies this particular verse and shows up in that particular book that has become a merchandising phenomenon. But it has nothing to do with prayer in this age, has nothing to do with spirituality, has nothing to do with manipulating God to get what we want. See, prayer is not a manipulative tool. God is not some big Santa Claus sitting up on a big chair in heaven waiting for you to come in, stroke his beard, and pat him on the cheek, and tell him what you want for Christmas, and he's going to give it to you. That's not what prayer is. But a lot of people get that idea that if they have the right formula, say the right words, structure it the right way, then God is going to give them what they want. 
No, that's not true. But on the other hand, it is clear from Scripture, from James chapter uh, 4, that we have not because we ask not. And that means that there are certain things that God has contingently provided for the believer and for certain nations. And if you don't ask for it, you won't get it. It's, if you do ask for it, then God will distribute it. There are certain, there's a certain element of flexibility in the plan of God that is dependent upon whether or not the believer asks for certain things. Now, you may not change God's sovereign will because he controls history and he is moving history towards a certain destination. Your prayers are not going to uh, cause the rapture to be any sooner or any later. If sometimes people become so frightened that the rapture might occur before I graduate, the rapture might occur before I get married, you know, just anything could happen. Well, the rapture may not occur for another two or three hundred years, but if you start praying that God holds the rapture off, that's not going to work. Or if you've got finals coming, (laughs) or some other impending disaster, praying for the rapture is not going to speed the rapture up any. You know, there are certain things in God's sovereign plan that are non-negotiable and non-flexible. But there are other things in God's plan that are flexible or contingent, and God is actually uh, waiting for the believer to exercise his privilege under his royal priesthood to ask for those things. And there are many things that people miss out on in life because they fail to go to the Lord in prayer. So that gives us our basic definition. The second thing about prayer is we have to realize that prayer can be private or public. There are two basic categories of prayer, private prayers or public prayers. Public prayers can be divided into different categories. For example, there are prayer meetings, and we have a prayer meeting here on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, and that is sometimes not very well attended, and that is because we forget its importance. And it is important And it's laid out in the scriptures that the body of believers gathering together for corporate prayer was viewed as a significant form of corporate worship from the early days of the church. Now, that doesn't mean that if you don't come to prayer meeting, then you don't have a very good spiritual life. It's not related to that. It is related to an understanding of the function of the body of Christ, that we're not just individuals out there like a bunch of atoms completely uh, separated from one another, bouncing down the highway of life. We are not just individuals. This is the body of Christ. One of the problems I keep harping on in terms of having an a biblical ecclesiology or a biblical understanding of the role of the church is that over and again the body the, the bible talks about the church as the body of Christ that we are members of one another See, in in American history, what's happened, and because of the emphasis on the individual priesthood of the believer, we've taken that too far to one extreme, where the emphasis on you just living your spiritual life, listen to your tapes, listen to uh, doctrine on the Internet, or whatever you want to do, but it's living your spiritual life. Nobody else can live it for you. That's true. But the Bible makes it clear that it is abnormal 
For any believer to think that he lives a spiritual life in isolation for other believers, you are not isolated from other believers. You are in the body of Christ, and therefore there is an emphasis on corporate worship, corporate gathering, corporate study of the Scripture, and corporate prayer. And so prayer meeting is something that is an important function of a local church. Then you have, in terms of public prayers, you also have prayers for specific functions. You have prayer invocations for, uh, this is not done so much, but invocations for uh, graduation ceremonies. You have invocations for football games. You have invocations for various different types of uh, civic events at times. In other places, there are uh, invocations that are given perhaps at a, at a wedding. You're asked to pray before a wedding or pray to uh, uh, at, at the rehearsal dinner or something like that. These are public prayers, and they usually have a specific function, such as the dedication of a building, dedication of an infant, dedication of a, of a task, uh, invoking the blessing of God for some organization, uh, benediction, a closing prayer, uh, blessing the food, asking or sanctifying the food at mealtime. And any of these prayers should be short and to the point. A public prayer is not a time to uh, necessarily make every doctrinal point you want to. So when Thanksgiving comes and you have all of your uh, pagan relatives gathered around the table, this is not the time to preach a sermon on salvation just because everybody's there and you have a, 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 a captive audience. However, it is a good time to get the gospel out there and make it clear. You can do that in two or three sentences. You just have to learn how to do that. And without beating somebody over the head because they're hungry and they want to eat. And if you go too long, all of a sudden the gospel is something they will resent because it's keeping them from the pumpkin pie. So we have to be careful how we handle public prayers. But in a public prayer, if you have that privilege or opportunity at any time, you need to figure out ways to express clearly the gospel in two, three, or four sentences so that that much gets out there. I am amazed today at how few even pastors get the gospel out when they get opportunities of this type. I recently did a wedding down, performed a wedding down in, down in Texas. I haven't performed too many in the last few years, but I did one, performed one, what, a couple of years ago over to West Point. And what I get from every time I do a wedding is people come up and they make some comment about how clear the gospel was. In fact, this wedding I did the last time, I didn't see the father of the bride afterward. He was very busy, of course, with other things, at the rehearsal dinner and visiting with all kinds of friends. He called me three nights later and he said, I have never heard anybody make the gospel so clear and so precise as you did. And I just wanted to call and thank you. Now, there was a man who took time out of his schedule in order to express that appreciation. But he also went on to say that it had been a long time. He, he has, a, obviously, a daughter of marriageable age. And many of her friends are of marriageable age. And they've all been getting married. And he's been to a lot of weddings over the last two or three years. And he commented how rare it is to hear a clear gospel presentation at a wedding. And sad to say, it's also true that you get a, you don't always get a clear gospel presentation at a funeral. 
But see, the reason you have a funeral is not to eulogize the dead person. I don't know if you realize that. It's not to talk about how wonderful they were. The purpose of a funeral, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is to make sure that everybody who shows up is confronted with the fact that they're going to be in the box too one day, and they better make sure that when that happens, they're going to be face-to-face with the Lord when they die. It's not about the person who died. It is always about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I make sure that when I do a, when I do a wedding, people want to see him get married. So they get the gospel once and maybe a second time in a prayer. A couple of subtle ones. But when I do a funeral, I've got, usually I cover three or four basic points, and in each point I give the gospel three times. So by the time you leave, after 20 or 30 minutes, you've had the, you've been hit with the gospel from about 10 or 12 different directions to make sure you get the gospel. But a lot of times, if you're not a pastor, you don't do funerals and you don't do weddings, but you will be asked by the family to uh, give a prayer at Christmas or Thanksgiving, especially if they don't go to church and you go to church. Well, we'll ask you because you seem to have an in with God because you do the God thing. So you're the one who gets stuck with it. So you need to pay attention to that, that it's a great opportunity to make the gospel clear. Just don't preach a sermon. Now, <clears throat> Jesus said regarding public prayer in Matthew 6, uh, 5 and 6, when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites. That's his term for the Pharisees. See, Jesus wasn't afraid of pulling punches, and he didn't use politically correct terminology to make sure he didn't offend anybody. Now, Jesus wasn't going around offending just anybody, but he was certainly offending those that were uh, hostile to grace. You are not to be as the hypocrites, and he's not doing it in an offensive manner. He's just telling it like it is. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, and that was typical of the Pharisees. They went out in public, and they would pray so the people would see them and note how holy they were. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. In other words, if you want, if you're doing it for the benefit of self-glory and the glorification before men, then you're going to get it and that's all there is. And that's all there'll ever be. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. This is the principle of private prayer. That the believer needs to pray not because it somehow accrues honor to him, not because it makes him seem spiritual, not to impress others with how articulate and pious he is when he talks with God, but just to have a intimate, personal, private conversation with God. Third thing we ought to note by way of introduction is that we should not confuse prayer with many of the mystical ideas that go around today. You know, we live in an age of mysticism. When people define worship and prayer and spirituality in terms of personal feelings and subjectivity, how something makes us feel, and, and if we pray a certain prayer or hear somebody pray a certain prayer, oh, wasn't that spiritual? And you know there's a certain tone. I, when I was in seminary, you could all we heard all kinds of people pray, and I had professors who... You knew when they were praying, they were 
they were right there at the feet of Jesus at the throne room of God. I mean, when they were talking to him, I mean, it was just so personal and intimate. I had never heard anyone pray like that before. And then there were others where they just seem to have this 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 certain language and this certain and you always find and it's especially it's true not so true today but it's true of older pastors who grew up with the King James version that when they start praying all of a sudden their language is peppered with these and nows but that's only because they grew up with the King James translation and it tends to uh, almost fall into a holier or more godly language concept. But prayer is not to be measured or defined in terms of how it makes you feel, of whether it makes you feel like you're closer to God. It does not hinge on subjective experiences or meditation. For example, in Eastern mystical religions such as Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Taoism, and much of the New Age movement, God's an impersonal force in the universe. He's identified with the universe. So the idea is just to sort of empty your mind, empty your soul of any thought, and, and, and that makes you one with the universe. And, of course, that has nothing to do with biblical prayer. And the Bible prayer must be conducted in this age under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Our prayer has no efficacy whatsoever. And the church, of course, has been affected by all this external mysticism in our culture, and it has impacted the charismatic movement. And in Matthew 6-7, Jesus says something that directly applies to much that goes on in the charismatic movement. See, in the charismatic camp, there's the idea that there's a special prayer language. When you're speaking in tongues, tongues is really a prayer language. See, what happened in the history of the charismatic movement is they understood the uh, tongues correctly at first, that it was a legitimate language. And it was for mission, they thought it was for missionary purposes. And so they had their, their, the view that once people re- recovered this gift of speaking in languages, they could go to China, they could go to uh, Europe, they could go to Asia, they could go to Africa, and they could witness to, to thousands of people, and God would bring in this great end-time revival. But when they started speaking their gibberish to Chinese people, and they didn't know what in the world they were saying, and many other languages, nobody knew what they were saying, so they had to back off of that whole idea, which was biblical, and justify their activity by saying, oh, it's a prayer language, as if God can't understand what you're saying in your normal language. But Jesus addresses this in Matthew 6, verse 7. It says, When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition. And this is the Greek word, bata legia, which is an onomatopoeic word. And it means to utter senseless sounds or speak indistinctly or incoherently. It means to babble. And it was the idea of the two words in bata logia. Logia means words, and bata would be speaking in a bata manner. Bata, 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 because that's what it sounded like. Just sounded like somebody uttering gibberish. So Jesus in Matthew 6, 7 says, When you are praying, do not use gibberish as the Gentiles do. See, that's exactly what the Gentiles were doing. You go to the mystery religions among the Greeks, and they thought that in order to have greater closeness to God in prayer, they had to speak in some sort of ecstatic utterance. And this was the problem that we'll see in our study in Corinthians when we get there, is the Corinthians were saved out of that context, and they just brought all that mystical garbage with them into the church, and it created a lot of confusion. 
Jesus said, If you abide in me, that is, have fellowship with him, and my words abide in you, that is, doctrinal content, then ask what you will, and it will be done unto you. These are the two keys to effective prayer. First of all, we must be in fellowship with God, and secondly, our prayers must be doctrinally correct. We must follow the uh, procedures of Scripture in our prayer. Now, a couple of other things by way of introduction. Some extremes to avoid. Extremes to avoid. The first extreme to avoid is the neglect of prayer. This is usually the result of an overemphasis on the sovereignty of God. Well, if God wants such and such to happen, then God will do it, and I'm just going to wait. There's no prayer. We use that, we, we blame God, we use that rationale to blame God for a lot of things. We say, well, if God really wants such and such to happen, then we'll just wait and God will do it. But if it doesn't happen, then God didn't want it to happen. In other words, now it's God's fault. It's not my fault because in a clear area of delegated responsibility, I have chosen not to function but just to wait for God to somehow magically cure the problem. That's like sitting on your front doorstep and praying every day that God will mow your lawn and do your landscaping. So you've got the responsibility to do that, to take care of that which is yours and to watch over it. And you can sit there day after day after day and pray that God would take care of all of your yard work and nothing's going to happen. And what's happened is you have failed the test of personal responsibility in your realm of personal responsibility. So we have to avoid the neglect of prayer. We pray for things. That is the resting aspect where we trust God. But we also have to function in the arena of specifically delegated responsibility. A second extreme to avoid is emotionalism and subjectivism in prayer. This is the idea that that because I felt better about it this time, it was a more effective prayer. Or I felt closer to God, so therefore God must have heard me this time. Of course, another extreme that we need to watch out for in prayer is the idea of bargaining with God. Oh, Lord, just this time, if you do this, or if you don't do this, if you don't lower the boom on me for that sin, then I'll make sure... I get back to Bible class on a regular basis. So we try to bargain with God, and that doesn't work because God's omniscient, and he knows what really will happen. So we have to avoid neglecting prayer. We have to avoid emotionalism and subjectivism. We have to avoid using prayer as a means of manipulating God. And third, we have to avoid ritual prayer. Or fourth, we have to avoid ritual prayer. That is the idea of just saying the same things. When I pastored my first church, you know, there's some things when you pastor a church, you come into an organization that has a tradition and has certain rituals. I'm not talking about the rituals of, of communion, that sort of thing. You can have high ritual churches and low ritual churches, but you just have any group of people that have been doing anything a certain way, that becomes sort of a cultural ritual for that congregation. And if you start changing those things, you're going to have a revolt on your hands because you get people outside their comfort zone. But my first church, they said the Lord's Prayer every single Sunday morning. And I was supposed to lead it. I hadn't said the Lord's Prayer in years. I had to go back and memorize the Lord's Prayer. They said the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed every single Sunday morning. And I figured, well, that's what they've done, so maybe if I'm here two or three years, we'll change that. Well, I was only there two years, so we never changed it. But it takes time sometimes. You have to understand that you can't change everything the first day, and you have to 
uh, wait and be patient for the Lord to work in people's lives. So ritual prayer, saying the Lord's Prayer, saying other rote prayers again and again and again. That's really not, that's usually how people apply that batalogia from Matthew uh, Matthew 6, 7, that is not what that is talking about. But ritual prayer is just a prayer that is just repeated over and over again. So let's summarize a few things about prayer. First of all, prayer is the grace provision of the royal priesthood whereby the church-age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. Second, we don't pray to be spiritual. Prayer is not something that makes you spiritual. You can't pray if you pray once a day now and next year you pray ten times a day, that doesn't mean you're more spiritual. It just means you're praying more. Prayer is not a means to spirituality. The only two means to spirituality in the Bible are the filling of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. We learn the Word of God under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and as we and, and when that's functioning, when we're filled with the Spirit, then we are spiritual. When we're not filled with the Spirit, then we are carnal. Prayer is a privilege of our priesthood and functions when we are spiritual, when that is in right relationship to the Holy Spirit. But the more you grow spiritually, the more you will understand the importance of prayer and it will impact your spiritual life. Your prayer life is no stronger than your spiritual life. Third thing, prayer demands concentration and thought. Emotion is counter to concentration and thought. If you read the prayers in the Bible, they are prayers that are well-crafted and well-constructed. They are not emotion, just people just mouthing off uh, however the Spirit moves them at the time. They are, especially in the Psalms, they are well-crafted and well-structured prayers. They are thought through. They show evidence of much concentration and thought and reliance upon doctrine. So prayer demands concentration and thought. And then fourth, prayer should be the highest priority in your life next to learning doctrine and growing as a believer. Fifth, as believers, our prayers fail because we fail in our spiritual life. We don't understand the will and the plan of God, so we ask for the wrong reasons and the wrong motives. Okay. Let's move on to the next major point, that is the mandate to prayer. We are commanded to prayer. Prayer is not an option for the believer, but is a crucial part of the function of your royal priesthood. Therefore, the question you should be asking is not, should I pray, or does prayer really work, but how do I pray correctly? Remember, God's given us precise instructions in the Word for how to pray, and we have to remember that a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. You can pray in a wrong way and it doesn't do any good. You can do a wrong thing in a wrong way and that's equally wrong. Or a wrong thing done in a right way is wrong. It's only a right thing done in a right way that is right. First Thessalonians 5.17 we read, Pray without ceasing. Actually, this is the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament. Uh, pray without ceasing. Pray is the verb pros eukamai. It is pros plus the verb we find in Third John 2. Uh, pros eukamai, it's a present middle imperative. It's a, once again, it's a, 
habitual present indicating that this is something that should be habitually true in the life of the believer. It is a, as a present imperative, it emphasizes something that should be a habit pattern and is the standard operating procedure for every single believer. That is reinforced by the uh, <coughs> adverb here, without ceasing. Pray in an unceasing manner. Do not stop praying. This doesn't mean that you pray over and over and over again. You never do anything else. But it is that prayer should be a consistent or persistent uh, pattern, habit pattern in your life. Second key verse is Colossians 4.2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. The verb here is proskartereo. Proskartereo is a different, different verb, and it has to do with making something a high priority. Pros. Cartereo, P-R-O-S-K-A-R-T-U-R-E-O. Proscartereo, and it has to do with uh, continuing something with an intense effort. With the, uh, and it has the idea of overcoming obstacles, doing something in spite of difficulty. To keep on, to persist in. Even though God may not answer your prayer today or tomorrow or next year or the next year, it is to um, be consistent and persistent in prayer. We are to do so in an, with an attitude of thanksgiving. That means our thinking should be characterized by gratitude to God, not in some sort of presumption that because I am praying that God do something a certain way, that he will necessarily uh, do that, and then a third verse in the New Testament that emphasizes uh, this aspect of prayer is Acts two forty two, which describes what was taking place in the early church: that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, in the English, it looks like they were devoting themselves to four things. Actually, they were devoting themselves to two things. The apostles' teaching and to fellowship. The last two items mentioned there, breaking of bread, that is the uh, Eucharist or communion meal, and to prayer, is an, that's an appositional phrase explaining the word fellowship. See, most people read that and they were devoting themselves to teaching and to fellowship. That would be fellowship with one another. But the fellowship here is they were devoting themselves to teaching and fellowship with God. Fellowship with God was done through the communion supper and prayer. That explains fellowship. This is not uh, fellowship with other believers. They continually devoted themselves to this, and that includes prayer. And the word there for devote, once again, is the Greek word proskartereo. So prayer was a priority in the life of the believer. Now, I want to cover six reasons that people don't pray. First of all, people don't pray because they lack confidence in being heard. They don't understand confession and cleansing. They think, oh, I've done something that disappoints God. I've done something to upset God, and God's not going to hear my prayer anyway. They, they're so loaded down with guilt 
that they're afraid to go into the presence of God. They have no confidence in the principle of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our prayers to him, he will uh, forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The sins were paid for on the cross. It doesn't matter how horrible your sins were. They were taken care of on the cross. And if you admit your sins to God, the slate is wiped clean and you can go forward. That doesn't mean that you will not go through divine discipline, but it does mean that you will now be in fellowship with God and have divine resources uh, in order to face the discipline. Second reason people don't pray is because people are ignorant of the biblical doctrine related to prayer. They don't know how to pray. They don't know why to pray. They don't know the different kinds of prayer. They don't know who to address their prayer to. They don't know anything about prayer, and so they just don't pray. Third reason people don't pray is they're ignorant of the mandate to prayer. They are spiritually ignorant of the mandate to pray, so they become too busy, too wrapped up with their own lives, and too caught up with temporal things to focus on God. They do not include God as a part of every activity, every decision as they go through the day. A fourth reason people don't pray is that some people doubt God. They doubt that He is really there. They doubt that prayer changes things. They lack faith. There's no function of the faith rest drill. And so they just say, well, God will do whatever God's going to do. Fifth, some people have experienced disappointment and frustration in life. And they think that God did not answer their prayer, so they are bitter toward God. But bitterness is always a result of self-centeredness and arrogance. So they blame God for their own failures. And then sixth, they they are fatalistic. They forget that, or they deny that prayer changes anything. They think that whatever will happen will happen, and so they forget everything about prayer. Now, how do we pray? What are the elements of prayer? Well, first of all, we pray by addressing our prayers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know that? Why is it that we are to pray, to the, to, uh, not to the Lord Jesus Christ, but to God the Father? Why are we not to pray to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because He is our advocate. He's our intercessor. Who's He praying to? He is praying to the Father on our behalf. That shows us that we do not go to Jesus with our prayers because he's going to the Father with our prayers. The Holy Spirit is also making intercession for us. And who is he going to? He is going to the Father. All prayers are to be directed to God the Father. Every prayer in Scripture is directed to God the Father. Of course, Jesus would uh, pray to God the Father because Jesus would be praying to himself. But all all prayers are all directed to God the Father. First element, and I use the acronym of CATS, C-A-T-S, to help remember the elements of prayer. C is for confession, A is for adoration, T is for thanksgiving, and S is for supplication. Four points, confession, adoration, thanksgiving, and supplication. So in confession, we admit or acknowledge our sins to God. We admit or acknowledge our sins to God. This is the principle of 1 John 1, 9, which I've referred to already. But we also have other passages such as Psalm 66, 18, which says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. 
Just because you pray doesn't mean that it gets any higher than the ceiling. Not only do you have to be in fellowship for God to hear your prayers, you have to be a believer to hear your prayer. The only prayer that a, that, that the only prayer that an unbeliever can effectively prayer, pray is a prayer to God to send him information about God. When you pray as an unbeliever, Lord help me, Lord send me the information about you, I want to know more about you, God will answer that prayer, but he will answer no other prayer. Unbelievers are just wasting their time when it comes to prayer. Now, confession is a principle that you find throughout the Scripture. In the Old Testament, it is pictured through the washing of the priest's hands as they go into the tabernacle. The washing of their hands and their feet at the laver indicates a cleansing from sin. When a priest was initially installed in his office, he had a complete bath. That is a picture of salvation. Then, each time he went in to serve in the in the uh, holy place, then he would wash his hands and his feet. This was again pictured in the same way by Jesus when he washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. Paul emphasizes this in 1 Corinthians 11 when he emphasizes a self-examination before the Lord's table. So confession is not something that uh, can be ignored. Confession is God's way of providing us with cleansing from post-salvation sin. Secondly, we have the principle of adoration. Adoration means to extol the grandeur and the magnificence of God by focusing on who He is and what He has done. In adoration, you can just take the essence box that God is sovereign, He's righteous, just, love, eternal life, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, uh, veracity, He's voracious and immutable. Take each one of those attributes and think about how you have seen that evidenced in your life and and praise God for that. That's just one exercise of showing adoration to God. Read through the prayer psalms, I mean the, the praise psalms, as the psalmist praises God for so many different uh, things that he witnesses in, not only in his personal life, but in the life of Israel and in history. Third, we're to have thanksgiving. C is for confession, A is for adoration, C, uh, T is for thanksgiving. A person cannot be happy in life if they are not thankful and grateful to God for everything that God has given to them. When you find somebody that is miserable, when you find somebody that is uh, angry, upset, bitter in life, they are someone who does not understand the grace of God or the goodness of God. We need to be thankful. We need to focus on what God has given us. Uh, since circumstances, people, and emotions always change, if your happiness is dependent upon circumstances, people, and emotions, then your happiness is always going to be in flux. You'll be up one day, down the next day, just because your circumstances have changed and the people around you treat you differently, and you now become a slave to your emotions and a slave to your, the circumstances around you. And the result is that you will end up bitter, frustrated, angry, and depressed. The solution is that you need to realize that everything that we have is from God. Your home, your bed, the air you breathe, the food you eat, your job, everything. Even if you don't have a job, you can be thankful to the Lord 
uh, that he is going to supply your need despite the fact that you don't have a job and that he will be providing a job, that he is taking you through a testing situation to give you the opportunity to trust him and to grow and mature as a believer. When you are ungrateful, you are arrogant. You cannot be humble and uh, ungrateful at the same time. You, gratitude always accompanies humility and true happiness. Scripture always associates prayer with thanksgiving. First Thessalonians 5.18, right after we're told to pray unceasingly, Paul says, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, Ephesians 5.20, Always give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. This is a result of being filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. As we grow spiritually, our gratitude will increase because we understand all that God has done for us. Colossians 2.7 states, Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him, and established in your faith just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. Colossians 1.12 Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And 2 Corinthians 2.14 But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. And Second Corinthians uh, four fifteen for all things are for your sakes that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Thanksgiving is a critical element. So we have three elements so far: confession, adoration, and thanksgiving. A prayer can be just a prayer of confession. You don't have to include all three. You don't have to include all four. You can take any one of these, and that can be your prayer. You can have short prayers of intercession, short prayers of adoration, short prayers of confession. But a lot of times we have to have confession anyway because we have sinned since the last time we prayed. So the C is for confession, the A is for adoration, the T is for thanksgiving, and the S is for supplication. And under supplication, that is when we are making requests to God, and there are two categories of supplication. The first is intercession. The second is petition. Intercession is prayer for others. Prayer for others. Now, before we understand this, we have to model our intercession or our prayer for others on the intercession of the Son. We need to realize that Jesus Christ is continually praying for each one of us now before the throne of God. In John seventeen eleven, Jesus said, "I am no more in, and I am no more in the world. And yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father." Keep them in thy name, which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are. And in verse 15, I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So, Jesus Christ is continually praying for believers in reference to strength in times of temptation or testing. So, that's one area in which we can intercede. Uh, furthermore, we need to realize that Christ's intercession is based on his finished work of salvation on the cross. And we, too, when we pray for others, we need to <clears throat> make that distinction between those who are saved and those who are not saved. You cannot pray someone into salvation. God's not going to tweak their free will. What you can pray for is that God would bring enough pressure 
and enough suffering and enough hardship into somebody's life that they'll be forced to turn to God as the only source of strength and happiness uh, and the only source of their salvation. So we are to pray for others. We are to pray for one another, but we are also to pray for ourselves. We are to take all kinds of things to God in prayer. Read the Psalms. In the Psalms, there, David finds himself in numerous circumstances where he goes to the Lord in prayer. Sometimes David is hopeless. He starts off some of the lament Psalms where he is just miserable. He is physically aching. He is so He is under so much suffering, and he is so miserable from his own sin, but as he confesses, as he focuses on God, as he restructures his thinking onto the the attributes of God, by the end of the psalm, he is praising God and giving thanks. These lament psalms are a tremendous source of... uh, uh, are a tremendous example for us when we pray in the midst of suffering and difficult circumstances. And we are to, so we are to intercede for others and for ourselves. Now this is exactly what John is doing at the beginning of 3 John. He is telling Gaius that he is specifically praying for him in certain areas. Uh, in verse 2, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. And then he is talking about thanksgiving and gratitude in verse 3, For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you have walked in the truth. So we see his gratitude and his intercession there in both verses 2 and verse 3. Now next time we'll come back and we'll start to take the rest of the verse apart and try to understand what he means by prosperity and health and how that relates to divine healing and the whole health and wealth movement that has so captivated and distracted millions of believers today because they want easy answers. They think God's a big Santa Claus and they think that that uh, Jesus Christ paid uh, the, not only the, sin, the penalty of sin, but also he paid for poverty so that you can be rich. And this is some of the most uh, absurd stuff that you'll ever hear, but it dominates the media. And it shows a remarkable misunderstanding of the atonement and of the grace of God. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today and to be reminded of how important it is to pray, to come before you, to praise you for all that you have done for us, to praise you because of who you are, because of your character, because of your attributes, because of the way you have planned and structured human history to pray in terms of gratitude, thanking you for all that we have, both the small things and the great things, and to bring before you our prayers for others and our prayers for ourselves. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right where you are, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to uh, join a church. You don't have to make a bargain with God. You don't have to reform your life. You don't have to raise your hand, walk an aisle, or do any of the other things that are often associated with salvation in a local church assembly. 
All you have to do right where you sit is decide what you are trusting in for eternal salvation. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Salvation is the result, the free gift of God for those who believe that Christ is sufficient, that Jesus Christ alone paid the penalty for sin, and that you add nothing to that and add nothing to faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. His death is all sufficient. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.